What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiore, and this is Black Balls. I am going to be on tonight for not very long. Um, I should just announce right off the bat that uh, we had some tech issues that we were trying to fix for the last hour. It seems to be a hardware issue on uh, my guests tonight on her end. Uh, that happens all the time. It's, it's you know, it's kind of funny because I was telling Richard the other day that. Um, I love talking to all these ex uh, cult members because of what they've gone through and what they seem to be accomplishing in life now and, and the bravery and all that kind of stuff. But there's a couple things that I find like, I actually find it really endearing. Um, one of the things that I've mentioned on the podcast before is that whenever I talk to Richard and I talk to him all the time now, um, we, uh, we become friends and uh, we're, we're like colleagues in, in a lot of ways. And, I noticed how many pop culture references that I make on like a daily basis um, because Richard is my barometer because he gets exactly none of them because, <laughs> because the cult wouldn't let him watch like, you know, HBO and shit. So uh, I find, um, I find that certain things like that, a common thread, like I now know not to drop pop culture references. Well, I, I do it anyways, because out of habit, I think, but it's because that's, one thing that the brethren, the ex members have in common, depending on when they left or were, when they were excommunicated. And the other thing is that, um, and it's because they're salt of the earth people. Um, you know, they, they, whatever the, all the bad things that the cult gave them in childhood. And I talked to Richard about this as well. Um, there's this sort of like accidental, possibly somewhat positive influence in how they carry themselves like they you know there's there's not a uh, status symbol complex that a lot of people that grew up in regular society sort of have and don't know they have i lived in toronto for the for 22 years and the suburbs of toronto for the 18 years before that and when you leave uh it's probably any city but when i leave toronto and i and then i go back after like like i did recently um after i think it was like two and a half years um, the once over, the the uh, the way that people, um, and it, it doesn't happen anywhere else. It doesn't happen in the country. But you go to the city, and you know you shouldn't take offense to it. I guess it's just the way it is. But you get once overs many times a day in the city, and if you haven't seen a once over because you live in the sticks, and then all of a sudden you have a dozen people in two days doing this to you. Oh hey, this casual like from shoes to bald head. I don't know. It's a little off-putting. <laughs> and uh, brethren people don't have that. They don't have that, uh, what would you call that? Um, not conceitedness. They, they just don't have a way uh, of carrying themselves that says, look how awesome I am. And I love that about them too. Um, but unfortunately, it also results in a like myriad, a, a gigantic pile of tech issues <laughs> happen all the time. Because these poor ex-brethren people 
just some of them are new. And this is, I, I'm, I'm trying not to generalize, guys. You know, I, I talk to so many of you, and I think all of you that know me would laugh because of what I'm saying right now. But I, Richard suggested, you know, he's like, James, do you think that we should start a headphone campaign so the ex-brethren members can participate without any tech issues? And I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. That'd be awesome. Um, <clears throat> I got to know, I, and, I, and I'm going to refrain from, um, I mean, you can see her name in the title. Um, I'll say her first name. Her name is Terry. I got to know her over the last, like, I guess, three days. We talked on the phone a bunch and, and sent each other texts and stuff. And she has a story uh, to tell um, in the same fashion that fashion in the same way that uh, Cheryl and I kind of uh, worked together before she went on the podcast. And for those of you who do not know, we did that sort of prep process because we wanted to make sure that if we are going to do a story about um, a sexual survivor that we had to make sure that instead of me grilling a guest um, because I don't think that that's good. And also instead of me um, giving an anonymous person a platform so that they can make an accusation against a public figure with no evidence, which is basically almost every me too story you've ever heard of uh, it becomes this um the, the the challenge for me was that I wanted to expose some of the things that the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church were doing, but I also wanted to make sure that the credibility of the person uh, firing off these allegations were doing it in such a way that protected themselves. Um, it, it was easy. It, it wasn't easy to criticize cases like that during Me Too. And, and that's just because the, when you're in a movement that is taking place and you're like at the apex of it, basically, where you are still like surrounded by, you know, that Me Too era, um, you would have noticed, at least in hindsight, that there were certain sacred cows in how journalists approached Me Too stories. And it just so happened that sometimes it was like, because when hashtags were trending, like, believe all women and stuff most of the people that shared something like that probably did it with a good heart that said, Hey, we need to uplift women. So it's not really about that. However, when you uh, looked at the actual story, a lot of times the formula was anonymous person accusations against uh, such and such, no police uh, report um, evidence, uh, very little, possibly only the statement from the accuser. And uh, I feel like the Me Too movement was uh, interesting because we kind of lost our ability to uh, be an objective journalist. Um, there are no other types of, of stories where someone is, is making an accusation where they would publish it without naming the person making the accusation and without any evidence of the accusation. Uh, and I'm not saying that these people, many of these people didn't, experience some sort of sexual trauma i'm not saying that at all i just thought it was like one of those things where it would make more sense to wait until the person had some sort of case to make and believe me i know that you can um i know that it is possible to fake a pol police report so i'm not like i'm not completely ignorant but the police report being filed to me was already a step above most of these me too uh, cases from a few years back. 
And so that's that's how we did it. We got advice from our lawyers, and that's how we did it. And when Cheryl was on the show, it was uh, it was really emotional. That was the first time. I think that I, I should just put all my my cards on the table because I'm kind of on this journey with you guys. Because uh, if you've ever uh, if if you've been following my work at all for the last decade, um, and you could pick, you know, the uh, like five journalists, five independent journalists that probably would never be known for talking to sexual assault survivors. Unfairly, I would probably be on that list because I was asking questions about sacred cows when the cows were still grazing on their sacred grass. So, and that's a no, no. Um, but since I have a problem with authority, I don't care. Now um, I'm, I'm a little bit less combative, a little bit less of a maverick, just more of a person that just wants to get information out. I also have a very palatable hatred for religion and how it's used uh, and weaponized against people and how people's faith or faith is weaponized against themselves. And so I'm just not the type of person though that would, would first come to mind for this. And it's really made me stop and think about how podcasting is uh, a unique space that really doesn't, um, it's not like it waters down journalism. It's just that it isn't tradition, traditional journalism. So that means, long story short, I, I feel good about the fact that we gather more actual evidence before we agree to tell the story. I think it's good that the people that want to come on this podcast are doing so knowing that they're not going to remain anonymous. Um, if someone came to me with, and this actually happened once, and she was fine with it, but if someone came to me, as this person did, and said, I want. I have. Uh, I filed a police report, and uh, I'm, I'm making an accusation against this elder at the Plymouth Brethren. Uh, but I want to remain anonymous. Um, I would tell her I totally understand why she feels that way, but I can't do the show. And it wouldn't be. I wouldn't view that as a slight to her. I would view that as just me wanting to just be consistent. I would never pressure this person to like come forward. Um, you know, uh, if she didn't want to, if she didn't feel comfortable doing it with her face on it, I, I would never try to talk her into it. But I would, I would tell her that just the <clears throat> the policy that we have here, in order to remain consistent, um, is just that we wouldn't do that. And I think the the way that I uh, um, the, my inaugural interview with a person who um, claims to have experienced that kind of abuse, that horrific those horrific actions um, was, was kind of humbling. It, I don't even know if humbling is the right word, but um, I noticed that I'm the, the maybe parts of me that were a little bit more cynical and not skeptical, but just so reliant, so heavily reliant on physical evidence in past, like when the Me Too era was happening, because I just thought it was being ignored so much that we would have to find our way back to like reasonable evidence and things like that. And that's why obviously Me Too stories are so tough, right? Because like sometimes women, if they go forward, they might lose their job. So then all of a sudden they have kids that they can't feed. So they don't go forward right away. I understand that. Uh, scared of your perpetrator or just so traumatized that you can't bring yourself to talk about it. I get all that. Um, and I would never try to tell someone how to like approach um, the justice that they're seeking. I think just mathematically when something happens to a person, 
um, you know, if, if they report it right, the, the sooner that they report it, the, the more likely they are to get justice. Um, that's just the way the system is because it's fresh and it's, you know, there still could be physical evidence and things like that. But I am not so ideological about that anymore because of Cheryl Hope. Because when um, when you research a group like this and you you're seeing if there is any pattern, you're seeing if there's any other people that may have experienced this kind of trauma, you begin to sort of construct an idea of this organization in your head. And this organization, um, from an outsider's perspective, I find it really creepy uh, the way that you're, you're born into it. You're, you know, you have, you have like probably an average of five kids. It sounds like anyways, that a lot of these families had like, you know, five kids. Um, And your loyalty is constantly being tested. And if it if it's not implicitly stated that your loyalty must lie with <clears throat> excuse me the the leaders of um the brethren right now the leader is this man his name is bruce hales he's from australia and <clears throat> he's the guy that says he can speak directly with jesus and that's not in a waxing poetic way <clears throat> where you can be like you know i close my eyes and pray and i i reach out to the lord and he gives me signs that's not what he's saying He's saying that he can talk to Jesus, um, which is crazy. Uh, one of the things that I uh, learned about interviewing Cheryl and about and, and, and basically everybody else, especially someone like a Dennis Rag, um, was sort of the sting that people can feel. Actually, all of them, Richard, too. The sting that they feel when they see the loyalty <clears throat> towards the church, like manifest itself above your actual kids or your parents um we just must at a instinctive human level um feel the sting of that even if we are conditioned to to accept that the dear leader is more important than your mom or your kid like it must just kick these people you know in the gut and Circling back just to what I was talking about, um, the guest that we were going to have tonight, uh, she did the same steps as, as Cheryl did. She filled out a police report. There, um, <clears throat> her perpetrator is indirect. I don't know how to say it because I don't want to reveal who it is. Um, it's a very small, close knit community, and it's emphasized by when you f- realize who Cheryl's accused, uh, she, who her. Uh, alleged perpetrator is and who Terry's is. And um, it, it, it it speaks to um, a lot of things. I just want to bring something up for a second because I spoke to another person. Uh, I don't even want to say what country because I don't want her to think that, uh, you know, I would be giving too many hints so that people know. I think she's going to come on eventually. But I heard her say something that I found interesting and kind of speaks to this idea of conditioning and coercion. And that is that she expressed sympathy and empathy for her perpetrator. Um, and it was, it was kind of powerful, but at the same time, it was really confusing. Um, and her response was actually pretty logical, if not, you know, uh, like it's almost like too nice. But her, uh, her empathy and her sympathy came from uh, a, an actual 
a smart sort of observation, which was that this person was raised in this organization and he was taught from a very young age that <clears throat> women should know their place. And women's place inside the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church is simply lesser than men. When they have their spiritual meetings or whatever they're called, the community meetings, women are not allowed to talk. Uh, I think they, they like they have to basically seek permission to speak, and but most of them just don't. Uh, you know, they're they're seen as vessels to deliver children, to cook, to clean, to wear these fucked up bonnets. You know, <laughs> looks like Alfred Hitchcock's uh, costume designer might have made. <clears throat> um, they're oppressed. That's all it is. It's just like a first world version of oppression because, you know. It's not your typical uh, poverty, but it's it, it's not poverty at all, really. But the oppression is still obvious. It's a centerpiece of what this organization does, and and what can permeate in a in a culture that oppresses women. Um, Christopher Hitchens said once that if you show me a country that is third world, that is below the poverty line, and that violence happens, you will be clearly showing me a country that oppresses women and he's right um you know if you think about uh basically every middle eastern country you know um where where women are treated because and it's because religion and politics are so intertwined right and so the brethren have like a version of that and the version of that and it's probably completely created out of male insecurity at one time <laughs> you know how do we get over the fact that we don't trust our women and we don't want men to be around them well, you just keep him at home and keep him pregnant. Good idea, Tom. Um, so it's not a new idea. It's, it crosses cultural uh, cultures. It, it crosses religions. And um, <clears throat> the version of that for the Plymouth Brethren is just that women are basically subservient. And so when she told me that she, she doesn't even really blame the, her alleged perpetrator because he was raised in an environment that taught him how to value women as lessers than men. I was kind of blown away and, and I couldn't figure out if I was wrong or not, or if she was, I mean, I don't know how she can be wrong. That's an opinion, but cause my, my gut and my brain reflexively, I didn't say this out loud. It was just like, well, fuck that. You could like probably give that excuse to most people that mistreat women. They probably had dads that didn't value women. They probably had like male influences that were misogynist or sexist. And they probably picked it up. But eventually you have to find a, a way to like um, realize that it clearly is, is this like archaic idea. It doesn't make any sense. We are, we should have been beyond that as a collective. And uh, it usually takes a religion to sort of make people convinced because if you go by ancient texts, when women were literally property, you know, it's, I, it's no wonder <laughs> that there's still groups that are trying to hold on to that kind of traditional, traditional vibe. So I, I, I find that weird. So what I'm getting at with this rambling um, short episode of blackballed again, um, just to repeat what I said off the top, uh, our guest tonight uh, couldn't be here. We tried, Re redoing the or repairing the tech issues and it just wasn't happening so we we're going to reschedule um because the thought that i had was just 
you know, if we if we give it a go and her courage is being completely fucking um photobombed, whatever, metaphorically speaking, by really awful audio. Um that wouldn't be good for anybody, but especially her. This is like the first time she's going to be talking about something publicly. And the weight of 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 having to do that or or feeling like you have to do that in the right way, the weight must be just formidable. You know, I I I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine sitting in front of a camera talking to some fucking weirdo like me and 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 on his show and telling however many people that uh probably the most personal and painful thing that's ever happened to you. Um, so I didn't want to, I didn't want to force the issue. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Uh, we're going to have her next week. And tomorrow, um, I fully anticipate not having tech issues, but uh, Cheryl Hope is going to be with us again tomorrow. And so is Richard Marsh. And uh, Cheryl uh, from, I'm going to get the date wrong. Sometimes I don't know what year it is, but whenever when she was on the show, actually, I can just find out. When she was on the show, it was back on June 29th. And so it's been uh, it's been about a month and a half, and her life, I would say, I think she would agree, has completely changed. Her life is um, <clears throat> probably really stressful. It's probably really hard. It, you know, it's. Uh, but I think she would agree, and I don't want to speak for her, but I do speak with her enough to to know that I think the following is true: that um, as far as going being being able to see sort of like the fold in your next life chapter um for for cheryl it was probably around the time just before the interview when she was making all of these decisions that would impact um her life drastically because of where she comes from and some of the people that she might still talk to but it also opened up this really positive pandora's box of support and uh, of of not just support of tacit support or verbalized support, but like I'll talk to the police because some of the stuff that I heard on the podcast is true, and I witnessed it. This is one individual. Um, there's also been other women that have come forward and are going through the process, and this is uh, multinational. This is international. It's not just Canada, uh, but United States. There's a couple. There's uh, an Australian. Um, and they're all coming on the show. And it's funny because uh, <laughs> I don't know how the legal system works in Canada, let alone Australia, New Zealand, and the United States and whatever state you happen to hail from. 
Um, so there's things like statute of limitations. There's, there's also ways to get around statute of limitations that I just found out where if, um, if the person is still alive, you can still file a report and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, the point is, is that, um, I didn't mean to start a, like, a, a trend in a way among ex members that want to talk on, on this show, but it's interesting because they are, uh, preempting our first conversation by saying either I've already filed a police report or I just want to let you know, James, that I must be like the police report Nazi because they're like, I just want to let you know, James, that I, I'm in the process of filling out a police report. I know that that's your prerequisite. And I'm just like, yeah, okay. So it's dope because, um, you know, I, I'm going to hesitate to say that, that a movement is happening. First of all, I'm not that tech smart, so I wouldn't be able to tell you if a movement was happening unless it's, you know, someone making a joke about going to the bathroom. But um, the idea that, um, and, and there are 50,000 members worldwide, the ex-member community, I would never pretend that I even knew how to guess what that number was, but let's say it was 50,000 and we know it's not. Is that a move? Is that big enough to be a movement? Um, and I think that's another Toronto thought. I think that is another one of those is yours as big as mine kind of thoughts. It's like, it doesn't matter to me how big the, <clears throat> the movement is. It is, in fact, kind of interesting that it is such a small exclusive club to be an excommunicated member of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church because um, the powerful conversations that I've been having like I can't even like tell you guys how different it is for me <clears throat> to have on a regular basis. I meet new people and they're all ex members. Some of them like Ron Fox was a ex elder who actually led the Australian. Um, you call it like the federal, you know, Jesus's hat check girl or whatever the fuck they're called. Um, but uh, anyways, so his, his perspective versus someone like a Richard Marsh, they couldn't be more different, except for the part where everyone you knew your whole life turns their back on you and then stabs it as you're walking away. But as, for all intents and purposes, um, Mr. Fox was one of the people uh, that, you know, that was put in charge of things like the separation doctrine, where they basically, if you're a parent, they... Um, finagle the already embedded idea that you need to side with the church before siding with your parents. And, and, and Ron Fox was one of the person that executed the spirit of that doctrine and tore families apart. He comes on the show and he is not just a person who's like super nice and polite, but his mea culpa of how guilty and shameful he felt for doing those things. I mean, it, it was, it was powerful stuff. Um, so, and, and, and that, even though he was totally different from just a typical member, because the typical member would then come on and, and express feeling like they were completely um, destroyed by a person that would be either in charge of hiring private investigators against you, like in Richard's case, or hiring um, family lawyers to basically kidnap your kids. Um, it gave them a commonality that it was a really odd way of getting there. It's like when libertarians agree with progressives about being anti-war. 
but libertarian or progressives believe in that because they want less people to die and libertarians just don't want to spend tax dollar money right so they have a totally different starting point in getting there but in richard and ron's case for example they they shared um a recognition of the damage that this organization was doing and it just happened it, it just so happened that one person giving that opinion was uh one of the executioners and i'm using that term metaphorically who would do sort of that dirty work of separating families um i was like blown away by mr fox's just ability to to fall on not fall on a sword but to to admit that he did wrong without any typical western media type pr boilerplate attached to it and without a tone that seemed insincere like the dude seemed like legitimately guilty of things and and he hasn't been in the church since 1984 um all of this i'm telling you all of this because <clears throat> um in the next three weeks we are going to amp up uh, the frequency. I know it's hard to believe because it's basically all I do now. <clears throat> it's funny. I keep joking with friends about how last week I did take a week off doing Brethren stuff. And I now wanted to keep it a little light. So I had Spenny on from Kenny and Spenny to talk about our illicit drug use and how it almost destroyed our lives. So that was light. And then I had um, John Spencer. He was uh, He's a urban warfare expert. A couple tours under his belt in Iraq. The handbook that he wrote is being utilized by Ukrainian civilians and the military as to how to engage in a urban war. Um, also light. And, um, and the, you know, journalists talking about serious stuff. It was just a week of, and to me, it was like going on vacation. It was, it was like, you know, this is a lot less stressful urban warfare expert than it is to talk about religion because religion hits all of my buttons, all the buttons that I hate. I hate, um, you know, the damage it does to kids. Uh, I hate the idea of how an omnipotent being is all you need to do things that a person who doesn't believe in an omnipotent being can't, can't do. Like, it, it, it's so ass backwards. You give more privilege and more leeway and more freedom to somebody who believes in something that can never, ever be proven even to be real. And that's what you give the most credence to. Um, and so when we have uh, we have ex-members on, and we're going to continue to do that, and that's great. But we're also going to start getting lawyers on, and we're going to start getting um, journalists on. I, I, I already had uh, a couple of days ago um, Michael uh, from a show. I, I, I'm, I'm hesitating to say his last name, though, because I, I, someone told me I was butchering it. And, uh, and I think it's Bachelard, but I think there's like a weird way of saying it. But uh, anyways, we had Michael Bachelard on from The Age, uh, Australia's, quote, paper of record. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was a good perspective. And it's like part of that collage of perspectives that um, we're going to start showing over the next few weeks. So we're still going to have excommunicated members. Um, my guest tonight, who will be on sometime next week, is... A very unique story because she was she has allegations against members um for for uh you know things that uh she says happened to her but she was never a member so um and that is pretty rare like you're not supposed to fraternize with the sinners i guess right and uh so that makes it interesting so we're gonna have uh journalists we're gonna have excommunicate members we're also gonna have lawyers and the reason why is because um, 
my conversations with Richard, which are daily, um, and, and we're working on a kind of a big project that I don't know if I should announce yet. I think I accidentally did, but um, I think I'll I'll just wait. We are working on something together. You could you might be able to figure out what it is. I will not answer you if you ask. But the um, the conversations end up going to a place where it's like, well, what are we trying to accomplish? And one of the things that we want to accomplish is the ability to, uh, it's two-pronged, to ask questions uh, to politicians and maybe even media people as to why there seems to be a sort of tacit um, tolerance of what is clearly a cult. And uh, I'm stumped at what the answer might be because I've never asked anyone, I've never seen anyone be asked that question. I want to know why Stephen Harper um, swore on a cult Bible when he was inaugurated. I just want to know. <clears throat> Did he know it was a cult at the time? It seems like a pretty easy answer uh, if someone in the media with uh, you know access to someone like him should ask. He would pivot out of it probably. He Someone would be like, um, Mr. Harper, it's come to our attention that when you were sworn in, and here's a, I think I actually have the photo somewhere. Um, <clears throat> you know, when you were sworn into office, um, you asked, which was totally out of the ordinary, that you use your own personal Bible. Fair enough. Was it a Plymouth Brethren Christian Church Bible? And let's say it was. And then the reporter would talk about how all these allegations and is it a cult? And all Stephen Harper would do is this. Well, uh, you know, I wanted to bring a personal Bible. Uh, it was a gift. Um, you know, I'm not a member of the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. I also don't really know enough about them to even comment, but uh, yeah, it's just a coincidence. And, uh, you know, uh, we have the freedom of uh, religion and assembly and, uh, you know, it's up to Canadians to see how people are, uh, you know, expressing that right. And that would be it. And it would probably be a lot better than whatever the fuck I just tried to do. And and so I'm not expecting any miracles to happen, but I think that maybe Canadians might be interested if you, if you expose this group and you start raising awareness that this group is in fact a cult, and then you know that your prime minister swore on the cult Bible when he was inaugurated, and then in 2011, in the front row of his acceptance speech when he won again, are five members and powerful members of this cult. And then you find out that he um, finished his speech, and the very first thing that he did was go down and shake the hands of the the gentleman in the photo that I'm posting. And for people listening, it's uh, Chuck Truon, Ron Taylor, Brad Mitchell, Ron Barnes, and Ralph Mooney. I think four out of five of those are American. Um, this, the assumption is, because I haven't been able to see any donor list from the conservatives from that year or 2006, is that, you know, Donor, the donors are transactional, right? You don't just donate money to someone because you like them and then you expect nothing. You know, right? the, it's a quid quote, it's a quid pro quo uh, system. So these uh, cult members, these cult leaders, are sitting in the front row. I want to know if anyone else seems to find this problematic. I want to know if there's anybody that doesn't actually. Maybe that's even more um, poignant of a question. The and by the way, um, I just looked in chat for the first time because I don't want to get totally distracted. If you guys are talking about recipes, can someone put something like uh, like a coffee recipe that uses oat milk? Because I've heard good things. Anyways, 
Um, now I'm going to turn chat off again because it's going to destroy. Yeah, I, I mean, I just want to know if other people feel like I do uh, and think that it's weird that Stephen Harper seems to be or was in bed with an actual cult. Um, I'm a little concerned that people don't think it's an important question. So I've had to take a step back and look at my view on religion and think to myself, how is my view on religion is it impacting the way that I'm covering this? Um, the short answer is, yeah. But it's not an emotional motivation. It is a um, an idea that, in my opinion, religion was born out of not knowing what shit was, right? <clears throat> and And it helped... Uh, control, and I don't necessarily use that word in the negative, because uh, maybe some people needed rules back then. And if everyone believed in God, and if everyone looked at the sun and bowed towards it or whatever, something tells me there wasn't too many people back in the day that were like, listen, you guys can like pray to that God, but I don't think there was any evidence to support the idea of an omnipotent being. There was like none of those back then. Maybe a couple, and they were Greek and probably doing naughty things things when they weren't working but nevertheless uh you know is my motivation just like being a rapidly atheist and it's not um do i think the catholic church is a cult yeah it's kind of like cult light vatican definitely a cult um you can tell it's a cult uh at the vatican because you kind of got the suspicion that the pope probably doesn't believe in any of this shit um, but ever go there, uh, ever see the footage at Easter Sunday, and it's just crazy. And people are lifting up their arms. I don't know what that does. What does that do? Like, if I don't lift up my arms, it's like, oh, look at James over there. He's not getting the full grace of God. I, I just don't understand it. I'm just wondering if there's any science behind it. I'm sorry to drop the S-bomb on you religious folks, but I, I don't really understand that. Anyways, maybe they're just expressing themselves like they were theater actors once, and now they're like, why am I in church? I don't like religion. I, I would love to see every single church in this country uh, either lose their tax-exempt status or just close down. I probably went a little far when I strongly encouraged the burning down of, of, of Catholic churches. I don't want people to just to, I mean, I don't want people to get in trouble for arson for doing something probably a little bit worthwhile. <laughs> I compared it once. I know that was a little <clears throat> hyperbolic. I compared um, the burning of uh, the Catholic churches down once to like, there was all this outcry and everything. And I was like, what have, what if the local illegal gambling and prostitution club was shut down or, or set on fire? Would there be like, well, I'm just so dismayed that all of those prostitutes, drug dealers, and gamblers were put in an unsafe position. And to me, that's not dissimilar to, um, I burned down a church that was a pedophile factory for the last hundred years at least. And by the way, probably the least negative chapter in this organization's history. <laughs> they worked with the Nazis. The, the, there was the crusades like like, like i'm sorry like I, I it was heinous obviously it seemed very devilish like 
what happened at residential schools. Disgusting and awful. Probably not as bad as the crusades. <laughs> like, isn't that fucked up? Um, so, yeah. So I don't care. Uh, if, if churches burn down, the, con- the thing that I would be relating it to as far as the drug dealers and prostitutes go would be just simply that if I knew that the organization that I belong to, no matter what it was, I don't care if it was like the book club or, <clears throat> you know, um, whatever, uh, the, the beer of the month club, I don't care. As soon as I find out that leadership um, was quietly transferring Catholic priests who were known to fuck children to other churches where they could proceed with fucking more children and then just kept getting transferred so that they wouldn't um, because they didn't want to go to authorities because it would be bad PR for the church. And that's exactly why they didn't do it. They didn't want the church to be seen in a bad light. Now, if that's my organization, I'm not going into a building with that organization's name and symbol on it. The second I find out that um, Pope Benedict, um, when he was Carl, uh, when he was the Cardinal, I don't know, I Ratzenberger, whatever the fuck, he looked like um, Senator Palpatine from uh, Star Wars when he was looking extra gross uh, with his hood and his old face. Um, but anyways, when he was a cardinal, he was the author. And I wish um, I had a good memory for Italian worded documents because um, it, it is a real thing. You can look it up. He authored the document that drafted the policy, the internal Vatican Catholic church policy that ordered diocese to transfer child rapists to another community where they would continue to rape children because the Catholic church thought that their, that, that their public image, <clears throat> their amazing public image after raping and murdering the entire known world for the last 2000 years um, might get a bad name. Like, I mean, can you imagine the church? Getting, anyways. And then people still went to church and you cannot get more systemic than that. Uh, if that doesn't make you walk, you don't have to walk away from Jesus, but you got to walk away from the church at that point. Um, maybe uh, part of my motivation is wanting to dismantle uh, a cult because of how religion is weaponized. Maybe. But what's wrong with that? What's, what's wrong with being motivated to want to evil people from using the faith that their flock has against them to manipulate them via the vehicle of that person's faith. Only religion can make you can make your children choose the organization and this fucking asshole, Bruce Hales, who apparently can talk to Jesus. Um, oh, I have some plans for that. Um, I'm I'm putting together I'm putting together something where um, it's it's like a skit thing where uh, we we record an actual conversation uh, between Bruce Hales and and one Jesus Christ, and it's just like a reenactment, you know, based on some of the things that we might know of how that conversation went down, because obviously it's true. Um, you know, 
I think when someone make oh yeah, I was gonna say before I'm not gonna wrap this up, but um the one thing and this is another conversation with Richard about why um Catholic the Catholic Church is like cult light and the Plymouth Brethren is like cult to the max uh is is pretty easy the as far as I'm concerned the um the Catholics the Pope is like the representative that um is sort of taking saint peter's job if i remember my catholicism correctly he is sometimes like a um it's like existentialism or you know you got to be a little philosophical or whatever when they say that he's like a vessel and that christ can sort of speak through him it's in the same vein as when you go to confession and you confess that you lied through your teeth during the last confession and they're supposed to be there to represent um, God receiving your 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 sins and your penance, um, and also be the vessel that um, conveys Jesus's forgiving of virtually anything you say you're sorry for. Which is why a lot of mafia people are Catholic. You can go whack Vinny on Sunday. And then, you know, the following Thursday, you can be like, you know, Father, I, you know, I, I probably should have been a little bit uh, easy on that motherfucking mutt. <laughs> and, and Father Joe is just like, oh, I don't want to get whacked next. You don't even have to say any Hail Marys. JC just told me you're all good. I mean, he was a dick. Um, of course, of course, uh, that enables you. But again, I just don't understand why um, any Catholic person would ever walk into a Catholic church again. Um, so. I am motivated by a dislike of religion and I'm proud of it. I am proud of it um, because I don't feel emotional about it. I don't feel hysterical and frantic and, you know, I think I'm doing it the right way. And um, it's, I think I should just like wrap it up there. Um, <clears throat> I was going to start saying thank you to a bunch of people, but that always sounds stupid, um, but they know who they are. I'm, I'm, I am just thankful in general um, that I got to meet these people. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I am all in, uh, in this story. And, um, and by the way, these people are just as much of a motivating factor as my, um, my hatred of religion, which should not be confused with my hatred because it doesn't exist of just people who are really good people who happen to believe in that stuff. Uh, I, I don't have anything bad to say about people like, you know, Ray that works on the network, for example. Um, there is, I haven't seen any bad quality about him. Um, I'm sure he's got a bunch like everyone, but he seems like a really honest, dope individual. So I don't judge people by their beliefs. I, but I judge institutions by the way they weaponize other people's beliefs at those people's expense like just the manipulation involved uh, that centers around you using faith as a control mechanism yeah i i can't do that i can't i i mean i can't um once i started doing it i couldn't i, I can't stop um which for a guy like me sounds familiar but instead of cocaine ecstasy alcohol acid shrooms hash i'm probably forgetting something because of the weed um you know I think that um, it can be a crutch, right? So it, um, but I'm still going to do it. I'm, I'm like addicted to 
um, doing more and more. It's like notches on the pew bench, you know, like I, I, I want to interview as many people as I can that tells it tells the truth about an organization that gets away with almost everything they do on that note tomorrow cheryl hope at seven o'clock and uh the only one that i have scheduled next week that is non-brethren is on the 24th uh, no sorry the 29th so it's the following week i have uh <clears throat> really well-known music PR person. His name's Eric Alper. Uh, but next week, wall to wall will be more Plymouth stuff. So I got Cheryl Hope tomorrow. And we'll announce same day, probably, uh, because, you know, some of these uh, people are in New Zealand and Australia, and the time difference just makes it different, uh, difficult to sync. Thank you guys um, for listening to me ramble for 47 minutes. Well, that was unintentional. Um, I appreciate all of you. And we will see you next time on Black Ball. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. The podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares. It's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.